For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. Our hope is to provide you with short episodes that help you learn about drug prohibition and its harms and possible solutions, as well as to invite you to change your mind in support of solutions that reduce harm and increase thriving, not just for people who use drugs and their families, but for all of us. Today, we're joined again by Dr. Jeffrey Singer to explore medication-assisted treatment. This is kind of a charged issue in the addiction and recovery communities, and Dr. Singer has studied it and written about it extensively, most recently in a policy analysis published by the Cato Institute titled Harm Reduction, Shifting from a War on Drugs to a War on Drug-Related Deaths. Dr. Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and works in the Center for the Study of Science and the Department of Health Policy Studies. He's principal and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics Limited, the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Arizona. He writes and speaks extensively on regional and national public policy with a specific focus in the areas of healthcare policy and the harmful effects of drug prohibition, which we refer to um, as drug prohibition or criminalizing uh, drugs. We use both of those terms on the show. He received his BA from B- Brooklyn College and his MD from New York Medical College, and he's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. Um, one of the quotes that was in um, one of his recent publications is that many who prefer stigmatizing rather than tolerating drug use criticize harm reduction as a signal of defeat. Uh, and medication-assisted treatment is often lumped into that as sort of signal of defeat. Um, but it, harm reduction has a success record that prohibition cannot match. So, Dr. Singer, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you back again. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we'd love to dive into with you today to medication-assisted treatment. Um, start us at the at the beginning. So what is it? How does it work uh, how successful is it? Um, there's been such a push towards abstinence only um, for so many years that uh, this kind of um, new newer option uh, for handling addiction, for stabilizing people who are addicted and helping them get their lives back has seen a lot of kind of varying responses. Some people are adamantly opposed to it. Some people say this is this absolutely saved my life. Um, so help us understand what's going on here and help us understand what medication-assisted treatment is. Um, I'm sure there's people out there listening who have addicted people in their families. Um, what's a good way for them to begin to understand what, what this offers um, and how it might help? Okay, well, I think it's helpful first to understand that uh, there are two uh, things at play here. First, there's chemical dependency or physical dependency, and then there's addiction. And it actually two separate processes. Uh, sometimes they operate at the same time, but we have a tendency to use the, the, the terms interchangeably. So chemical dependency is when, you're, when you've been taking a, a, a drug for a, a long period of time and now your physiology has adapted to its presence. And if you abruptly withdraw it, you could have terrible reactions, uh, sometimes life-threatening reactions depending on what the drug is so that you can't abruptly withdraw. You have to gradually taper off. Uh, opioids are one type of drug that you can get chemically dependent on, but there are numerous ones. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of antidepressants like Prozac or Zoloft, 
if you've been on them for a while, you, the doctor who put them on you will tell you you can't just stop it. You have to go on a tapering program or you can have a terrible reaction. Or even uh, nothing that has to do with any uh, of the mental aspects. For example, beta blockers, which are very commonly used for, for example, the treatment of high blood pressure. Um, if you have been on a beta blocker for a prolonged period of time, you can't abruptly stop it. You could, you could die if you abruptly stop it. You have to be gradually weaned off it. So there are a whole lot of drugs like that, anti-epilepsy drugs, etc., where you have to be tapered. That's chemical dependency. Addiction, on the other hand, is a completely separate disorder, um, and it's a compulsive disorder. When it comes to opioid addiction, what we're learning about it is that it's, uh, there's a, a genetic component, very similar to alcohol addiction, uh, anywhere from 40 to 60% of the features of uh, opioid addiction uh, are genetically predetermined. This doesn't mean that you're destined to become addicted to opioids because it runs genetically in a family, but it does definitely makes you more vulnerable to it. And most of the, the research on this suggests it's a combination of this genetic makeup plus some usually psychological traumatic event plus being exposed to this, which gives you a way of almost self-medicating against the trauma to the event, they kind of team up to create a perfect storm, and that's what gets you addicted as opposed to just being chemically dependent. But when you're addicted, of course, since you've been using it regularly, you're also chemically dependent. So if you abruptly stop, you could have terrible, terrible withdrawal reactions. A lot of the people out there using IV drugs who we we and they think are addicted. Actually, a lot of them may not even be addicted. A lot of them might just be chemically dependent, and they'll tell you the reason that they're, they're spending their day trying to find another dose of, of the drug is because they don't want to go through that horrible feeling they get as they're withdrawing. So they're motivated more by avoiding withdrawal than they are actually by enjoying the use of the drug. But then there are other people who are truly addicted where, when they've been clean, they're detoxed completely, it's still calling to them, and that's the definition of addiction, where even even in the presence of obvious self-destruction, destructive consequences, you know, you've lost your job, you lost your marriage, you've been in and out of prison, you just can't stop yourself from going back to it. That's a, a addiction, and that is a, a disease, not a vice. This, and as people who are addicted to alcohol, who've gone through 12-step programs will tell you, um, they they learn to understand. And I have patients telling me uh, when I'm taking a history on a patient, and uh, they'll tell me I'm an alcoholic, and I'll say, "Oh, so you're drinking right now?" No, I haven't had a drink in ten years. But they understand that they're an alcoholic. They have the disease, and they have to spend each day one. They, they often say one day at a time, battling to prevent themselves from falling back into that rut, because they understand that that, that this is uh, that this is a compulsive disorder they have. So the whole idea behind medication-assisted treatment is, number one, eliminate the fear of going through the withdrawal because that's a big driver. Withdrawal is, is a living hell. So um, when, back actually in the early 1960s, methadone was, is an opioid, a synthetic opioid, was invented in Germany in the 1930s. And it's about the same potency as heroin, which is about twice as potent as morphine. Um, and uh, when given in an oral form to a person who's addicted to heroin, let's say, or any other opioid, actually, it gets absorbed through the intestines uh, at enough of an, a level to prevent you from going into withdrawal because it binds with all of the receptors in the brain 
that need to be bound to prevent those withdrawal symptoms, but not enough to create that euphoria, that high that you're used to getting when you inject. So basically, it, it takes you away from the craving. It takes you away from the uh, from from worrying about the, the going through the pain and sickness feeling of withdrawal. But it also you're clear-headed, so now you could function. And and it's, it's very analogous. A, a form of medication-assisted treatment, for example, for nicotine addiction is nicotine patches or nicotine gum, because when you're a, a, a tobacco addict, you're actually the addictive substance in the tobacco is a nicotine. That's what you go into withdrawal uh, for. Actually, the withdrawal from nicotine is up to two weeks, which is longer than a withdrawal from heroin, which could be about five, three to five days. So um, the idea behind the nicotine patches or nicotine gum is uh, I'm getting you off of the smoking. So now um, you're not having to worry about going through the withdrawal symptoms. You're avoiding that. And it's true, you're still dependent on the nicotine, but, number one, I'm reducing harm because you're not breathing in all those carcinogens, all those tars and carcinogens into your lungs. So I'm decreasing your risk of getting COPD. I'm decreasing your risk of getting lung cancer. And I'm, I'm actually decreasing your risk of getting, you know, all of the other cardiovascular problems that are in the tobacco smoke. Now, we can, once, once we get that problem solved, we can then focus on tapering you off of the nicotine, and we can get you gradually off of that. That's the same exact thing behind methadone. So first, let me get you to stop worrying about going into withdrawal from heroin. We take that issue off the table. Now let's get you into a normal, stable life. Maybe you can get a job. Maybe you can get your, you know, your, your family life back together. You don't have to spend your whole day trying to hunt down your, your, your dealer or maybe have to scrape up the money to pay the dealer and come up with sometimes illegal means of doing that because that's no, no longer an issue. So now, now we could focus on, once we get your life stable, we could focus on getting you gradually tapered off of the methadone. Um, psychiatrists will tell you that over 50% of people with, with a substance abuse disorder have other psychiatric comorbidities, which means they have other psychological problems along with it. Sometimes it's clinical depression or anxiety disorder or sometimes uh, bipolar disorder, lots of other psychiatric diseases. And, and these other diseases actually get in the way of trying to rehabilitate the patient because these are other issues they have to deal with. So once you've gotten the patient back to being able to focus, they're no longer high, they're no longer uh, cognitively impaired because they're not under the influence, and, and they're also no longer worried and afraid of going through withdrawal. Now you can work on those things and gradually taper them off. So it's really not, you know, substituting one addiction for another. It's actually using, it's understanding what, what dynamics are at play on the, on the chemical level in that person's body and working with those things to get them off of addiction. And that's been, here's an irony. Um, methadone is... Uh, a class two opioid. As a surgeon, I can prescribe methadone for pain. Uh, occasionally, we'll have patients like cancer patients in the hospital who nothing seems to be controlling their pain, and I could write a prescription for methadone for that patient. Uh, and no, I have a I have a narcotics license that's an appropriate use. Nobody will give me any hard time about that. And sometimes, I have done it. Other doctors have done it, but I'm not allowed legally to prescribe methadone to a person who's afraid of going through withdrawal or who wants to be, have his addiction treated. 
because I have to get it. I have to, that can only be done through a DEA approved methadone clinic, which is kind of when you think about it, it's kind of sad <laughs> because uh, there the, the, it's the same drug. And if if a doctor is interested in treating addiction, you would think he should be able to use that the way doctors are permitted today to use another similar chemical called Suboxone, which is buprenorphine. So the uh, in fact, this, in, in this fall, Congress passed a, a, an opioid bill that expanded the number of patients that a doctor who wants to use Suboxone to treat addiction uh, can have, up to 275 patients. There used to be limits to 100. So Suboxone is a combination of an opioid called buprenorphine with naloxone, which is the antidote to uh, an opioid overdose. And they're combined in one pill, and if a doctor wants to treat addictive diseases, uh, he he works with these patients, he prescribes the Suboxone for them, they they can only take it orally. If they try to inject it, the naloxone in it will actually counteract it and won't let it work. Um, And it's the same concept. They get them off of their IV drug use, but they're not having to deal with the agony of withdrawal. And then they gradually work on their problems at the same time that they try to taper them off. Um, that's legal in this country and, in fact, was expanded this past uh, November by Congress. In Canada, in, in, in the U.K., in Australia, doctors can prescribe methadone the same way doctors can prescribe Suboxone in this country, and they've been able to do that since the 70s. But in this country, uh, the only way a doctor can prescribe methadone for, for people with, with addiction or chemical dependency problems is through a DEA-approved methadone clinic which has, there's so many bureaucratic regulatory hoops you have to jump through that it tends to make it very hard to get one started. And then when you get it started, under the rules, the person who you're treating through with methadone has to come to your clinic every day and take the methadone in the presence of a staff member of the clinic and then leave. And uh, sometimes after they've been behaving themselves for, let's say, six months, they're allowed to take some home for use at home. It's based upon this notion that, you know, you can't trust these people because they're bad people, as opposed to looking at these people as people with a disease. Um, and um, so you, you have this problem where there are a lot of people, if they live in rural areas or areas where there are only one or two methadone clinics. Right. So Mississippi is, you know, the most rural state in the, the, person in the country. drive 100 miles, you know, each way every day to take their methadone pills in front of somebody. But in our country, they're not allowed to to to, uh, to take to be on a methadone program uh, the way they could be on a Suboxone program. Now you may say, well, why don't we just have them all be on Suboxone? Well, the research shows that, and, and I talk about this in my paper. There's no one best way. Just like a lot of things in, in medicine, you know, uh, when you're treating a person for high blood pressure, one pill may work for one person, but for another person, it doesn't do a good job, and you have to use a different pill or sometimes a combination of pills to get that person's blood pressure under control. It's the same thing with with, with uh, chemical dependency and, and substance abuse disorder. So, in some people, Suboxone is a very effective medication-assisted treatment, uh, but in others, it isn't, and methadone works for them. Uh, and so, um, and then, in fact, even both methadone and Suboxone, a, a fair amount of those people will end up dropping out of the program and, and going back to using on the street. So nothing's perfect, um, but, but, to, but these are, need to be viewed as medication-assisted 
treatment of disorders as opposed to just, you know, replacing one addiction with another. Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great way to, to, to think about it. And the more that I've, uh, um, learned about kind of, you know, the, the risks. So, you know, relapse is so common with, um, drug addiction and, uh, if you're on a medication assisted treatment, um, I've read more about Suboxone than methadone, um, that it decreases your risk of death, even, you know, in, in case of a relapse. So the, you know, the, the chances of dying from a relapse, uh, if you come out of jail where you've been forcibly detoxed are exponentially higher than if you had never been put in jail and were just continuing to use drugs because as you, uh, are separated from the drug in your body, is not uh, experiencing it anymore, your tolerance for it goes way down. So, right. You know, fact, studies have shown there's a much higher, that, and that underscores addiction, okay? So a person is uh, detoxed the hard way. A heroin addict is in jail, and he just suffers through the withdrawal. He detoxed the hard way, and let's say two years later he gets out. If, he's, if he was just chemically dependent and not a true addict, uh, he may say, uh, you know, I'm going to go the straight and narrow and I'm, I'm done. But if he's an addict, one of the first things they do when they get out is find their connection and go back to using. But because they remember the, la- they remember the last dose it took to give them the desired effect, but they've lost their tolerance because they've been detoxed for a year or two. So they're much more prone to, to take too high a dose for them now, and then they overdose and die. So there's a much higher overdose death rate among uh, de- cold turkey detoxed heroin addicts getting out of jail than among the general uh, addiction population. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's important because, uh, you know, people say, well, why not just abstinence? It's the same thing with alcohol or tobacco, uh, which both are addictive. Um, some people will tell you stories that they quit cold turkey and they did fine. And, uh, you know, that's great, and I'm happy for them. But that's just some people. Most people, it doesn't work that way for them. And, and it's also important to understand uh, the distinction between chemical dependency and addiction. A lot of those people who, when they, when they just did abstinence and they, they quit cold turkey and they said, I haven't wanted it ever since, they probably weren't addicted. They probably were chemically dependent. Because if they're addicted, it's, it's like this siren calling to you. You you, you know, you just, it, it, it keeps wanting to tempt you to go back to it. That's why you see your whole life falling apart and, and, and you keep promising yourself, this is the last time. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to get help tomorrow. And then tomorrow you do the same thing again because you can't, you, it's a compulsive disorder. So abstinence may work for some, but certainly not for most. And the people who it works for probably weren't addicted. They probably were, were just dependent. You know, it's important. Um, people are, are, when, when people people should start looking more at reducing the harms that the black market uh, uh, inflicts on people because of prohibition, as opposed to just trying to get people to stop. Because there's a lot of research now suggesting this is this is no longer just affecting small uh, marginalized groups in the inner city or something like that. This is affecting. Everybody, there's hardly a person who doesn't have a friend or relative or somebody they know who's uh, been uh, a victim of drug addiction or or, or chemical dependency or drug abuse. A study that just came out this past September 
from the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. It's a really good study. They dug into CDC numbers going back to the 1970s. And what they found is, uh, to, I'm, I'm paraphrasing them, there's been a steady exponential increase in the non-medical use of both legal and illegal drugs in the black market since the 70s on a ex steady exponential rise that shows no signs of stopping. In fact, the trends are as we can expect it to continue. The only thing that's changed is different drugs come in and out of vogue at any given time. And they point out, for example, in the late 70s and early 80s, heroin was the number one drug because a lot of soldiers were coming back from Vietnam with a heroin habit. Uh, and uh, then from heroin, it moved to cocaine in the 80s. And then cocaine's been up and down and up and down. Now it's heading back up again. Meth was up in the early 2000s. Now it's back up again, by the way. There were 10,000-plus overdose deaths related to methamphetamine in 2017 compared to 1,887 in 2011. So that's back up on the increase. It just hasn't caught the attention of the media. And what, what it seems is that these external interventions by, by government to try to get to clamp down on one particular drug only serves to make the non-medical users move over to a different drug as a substitute. So in the early part of the 21st century, we started clamping down on doctors prescribing opioids to patients in pain. And, of course, the fewer prescriptions that are written, the fewer prescription painkillers are available to be what they call diverted into the black market for black market use. Uh, so what we found is that everybody's just moved over from prescription painkillers to heroin and now fentanyl. And in fact, the latest numbers from 2017 from the CDC found that 75% of opioid-related overdose deaths that year were from heroin or fentanyl, and that only 10% of the opioid-related overdose deaths that year were strictly from prescription painkillers with no other drugs on board. So. And meanwhile, the death rate went up 13% between 2017 and 2016. So this is a steady, increasing problem. And it's obviously more complicated than, 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 it, than we think it is. There's a lot of stuff at play here. It's, it's a societal thing. Why is it that, you know, since the 1970s, more and more people are willing to uh, engage in risky behavior with drugs in the black market, maybe some maybe self-medicating for psychological disorders, and this isn't just confined to the United States. This is throughout the developed world. A study came out in November 2017 from Washington University in St. Louis, and the researchers found that out of the heroin addicts entering rehab in 2015, 33% said their gateway drug, gateway drug was heroin. They started on heroin as opposed to only 8.7% who said the gateway drug was heroin 10 years earlier in 2015. So we're seeing people willing to, uh, to, to, to experiment with drugs that 20, 30 years ago nobody would have fathomed trying to experiment with. So something is going on in society, and, and it's beyond, obviously, mm. my expertise, yeah, that's a great point. It's quite a lot of study, but this right, is not to a make it, it's, This isn't really about the drug at its heart. It's really about what is the drug symbolizing? What is it doing for people? What's pushing uh, these different things? Because, like you said, if we, we crack down on one and people move over to another, there's something much deeper going on in uh, a breakdown in our society and who we are as people and how we're interacting with the world around us and our level of connection. So many different um 
things that are, are part of that. I wanted to write, uh, read a um, letter from a listener. Um, since we're talking about medication-assisted treatment today and its ability to um, to save lives and to help people stabilize so that they can then begin to deal with their um, addiction. And um, Michelle's story is about uh, how Suboxone, she says, saved her life. Um, she says, my name is Michelle and I was in active addiction to opioid pills for 11 years. Medication assisted treatment through Suboxone saved my life. My addiction didn't start until I was in my late thirties. I started having hip problems. I had been a cosmetologist for 20 years and this burning sensation in my hip wouldn't go away. I had no health insurance, so I didn't go to the doctor. An acquaintance offered me some pain pills and that really helped. Eventually the pain got so bad that I went to the doctor and was diagnosed with congenital hip dysplasia. My doctor advised that I wait as long as possible to have surgery, so I did, and managed the pain with prescription opioids, and it worked. But for me, it did more than just take away my physical pain. I went through a lot of emotionally traumatic things earlier in my life, and I just dealt with the memories all those years. But when I took pills, it didn't just numb the physical pain. For me, it numbed the emotional pain, too. I didn't have to feel it anymore, and my strength to deal with all those memories finally broke. I started taking more pills than I was supposed to, finding them anywhere I could, and I spiraled into addiction. I lost everything. My relationships with my family, my friends, I lost my car. It was just horrible. 11 years of horrible addiction. I finally had hip surgery, and I woke up one morning and said, I just can't do this anymore. I knew if I didn't get sober, I was going to die. I had already lost my fiancé to a fentanyl overdose, and I had overdosed once myself, but I survived. Did I loathe myself in addiction? Loathe isn't a strong enough word. I knew I wasn't that person, but I was doing these things that I hated so much. I hated myself. I felt like a dog. Why do I do this? I was raised better than this. God, please help me. But I couldn't help myself. I've always been a strong person, mentally, physically, emotionally, but I couldn't fix this. And I'd look in the mirror and I'd think, why did this happen? I tried abstinence, but the sickness of withdrawal just wouldn't stop. I started searching and learned about medication-assisted treatment. I found a doctor, and he explained to me what I had done to my brain and the damage that had caused over the years. He said there are people that can come off of Suboxone completely, but sometimes people have to continue to take it. I'm down now to only taking a baby dose of Suboxone, and maybe one day I can stop completely. People need to know that there is life after addiction. I get up in the morning and I take my medicine, and even if I have to take a minute amount of it for the rest of my life, I have a life now. I can be a productive part of society. I couldn't do that before. I didn't trade one addiction for another. I have a normal life now. I have a great life now. I didn't have that before. I couldn't get up and get around. I couldn't have a conversation with anyone. Now I can. Suboxone helped me. These two and a half years I've been sober on Suboxone have been the best time of my life, other than when my daughter was born. I have my life back. It's never made me feel anything other than normal. My life is a thousand times better than it was when I was addicted. I've restored my relationships with my family, my mom, my dad, my daughter. My family didn't understand addiction any better than I did. They thought I had just gone crazy. The doctor helped us all understand what had happened to me and our family. The best way to describe the difference between my addiction and my recovery is to imagine that it's the darkest, darkest night with no stars, no hope, no light whatsoever, and you're lost. And then you think about the most beautiful day and surroundings you ever hope to see. That's the difference. It feels like two different lives. I had lost all hope of restoration with my family. I had lost all hope of ever being out of the rat race of chasing, chasing, chasing pills. I thought I would die without those pills. I couldn't imagine any kind of future. I could never imagine the life I have now. But it takes so much time to regain trust back. 
my mom and dad have been my rock. People really do need a support system in recovery. Some people need to have medication-assisted treatment. They just do, and I did. I still suffer from brain fog and didn't have that before my addiction. But to wake up and feel like a normal person now, it's worth everything. That letter is from Michelle here in Mississippi sharing her experience. Uh, One of the points that Dr. Singer made that was great was that uh, we kind of have this tendency to sort of project um, either our own experience or someone else's experience and try to make it prescriptive for everyone. And just like methadone works for some people and not others, and Suboxone works for some and not others, we need to approach complex issues, this complex issue of addiction, in complex ways and look at people one by one for what did they need, what can help them. Dr. Singer, thank you so much for joining us today. You can access more of Dr. Singer's writing and research at cato.org slash people slash Jeffrey dash Singer. If you have questions, comments, or want to share your story, you can always email us at podcast at enditforgood.com. I'm your host, Christina Dent, with my co-host, Mike Madison, inviting you to join us as we continue exploring ending our criminal approach to drugs as the best path to reducing harm and offering more people an opportunity to thrive. Dr. Singer, thank you so much for um, letting us access your professional knowledge. Pleasure. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.